You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome back to Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. And where's Aida Osmond? The correct answer? Not here, but she will join us later in the episode. So don't you fucking freak out. And anyway, I'm glad Aida isn't here right now because, Louis, there is some healing that needs to happen. So I'm bringing you to the red table. <laughs> but, <laughs> I guess... We need to talk about Jesse Ware. Oh, <laughs> oh, I, well, I've been read to filth since my Keep It last week. Since your Keep It last week, my mentions have been... <laughs> Full of angry gays. I'm sure people have reached out to you. Oh, they're they're not um, reticent. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I will tell you that one person commented on <laughs> my Instagram with Lewis can keep his keep it regarding Dame Jesse Ware. If he can't dance to Mirage, he can have a seat in McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, nothing wrong with McDonald's. So don't even throw that bone out there. You think Suck I don't come it. from the McNugget community? Respect. You little hamburger. That's me. Second, is Jesse Ware a dame? She better not be. I don't think she. I do I do think we should be referring to all British people, maybe even men and women as dame all the time. It just works. <laughs> but um to reiterate, last week I talked about Jesse Ware the Actually, awesome artist. I don't mean to say I hate Jessie Ware or anything. I just don't find her new album danceable enough. And apparently people love dancing super fucking slow. I'm sorry. Like, that's the takeaway I get from all this uproar. (laughs) My only argument is that it is very much disco. It's just not dance disco. Now, you said that on Twitter, and I can tell you thought it sounded smart. What the fuck are you talking about? Disco is about dancing, sweetie. No, disco is about a sensuality. It is about a moment of escape from, you know, the torrential downpour of racism and bigotry and misogyny and everything else that is outside of the discotheque. And sometimes there is a low down beat in some disco music. And, you know, I think if you listen to some Once Upon a Time, a love trilogy by Donna Summer, those mm. are upbeat. Those aren't Giorgio Moroder giving you I feel love. Those are, you know, something sensual and I'm like the, ketamine. Uh, I feel like, okay, well, that's an interesting point. But I do feel like the Once Upon a Time era wouldn't necessarily come on at Studio 54, for example. I appreciate the lushness of the production of this album. I just don't think it being heralded as 
the dance moment we needed is quite accurate. I'm I'm not I'm not happy oh. with how it was reviewed, basically. And okay. also, people were trying to read me to filth for not knowing about disco. Honey, please come the fuck over here. I'll take you through the Bee Gees catalog. I'll take you through the Cheryl Lynn catalog. I'll take you through the Vicky Sue Robinson catalog. Come for me. What <laughs> white gays specifically? Definitely <laughs> stand up to me. Wow. This has been Red Table Talk. <laughs> we have an exciting episode of Keep It For You, though. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden is joining us. Guys, one of my favorite actors ever. I can't believe this is happening. Other than we had Jane Fonda before, so I guess just anything is possible now. <laughs> I was truly revisiting some Marsha Gay Harden this weekend, just, and it was all coming back to me, Celine Dion, how much I stan her. Oh, yeah. And she's truly in... Everything. Everything. I find it hard to believe that anyone of any current age group, even like younger millennials and Gen Z, do not know who Marsha Gay Harden is because she is in everything. She pops up everywhere. She is in How to Get Away with Murder. Right. No, the, no, the amount of TV shows she... She's like on uh, SVU, you know? Like, she's wormed her way into all these different types of roles. And you think, in a way, oh, she usually plays a hard-bitten briefcase-wielding lawyer, but that is one-twentieth what she does on screen. And anyway, she's in a new show called Barkskins, where she is definitely not playing this. It's a period piece, which is rare for her, and we discussed that, too. Yeah. Will I talk to Marsha Gay Harden, the icon, Dame Marsha Gay Harden? Here we go. About Flubber? You'll have to tune in and see. <laughs> <laughs> Now that Adopt-A-State organizing trainings are all wrapped up and everyone is trained and at the ready, we'll be sending state-specific volunteer opportunities that will help causes and campaigns in your adopted state. Be on the lookout for an email this weekend with your state's CTAs. And if you haven't already signed up, it's not too late. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash adopt and join the thousands of volunteers looking to flip some swing states. And if you haven't already, check out That's the Ticket, Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonaco's bonus series on the vice presidential selection process. Episode one and two are both out now, and the final ep drops this Friday. Do you think they are going to be announcing who the vice president is on the podcast? That'd be a twist. You think they have that intel? That'd be a twist. Yeah. Duckworth, she's in it now. I have lots of options. (laughs) All right. Let's get into some culture, y'all. What have we been digging into this past week? Okay, well, I joined another Netflix train that people are obsessed with. And this, like I think with most people, has brought up disturbing memories from childhood. Who has watched Unsolved Mysteries already? No, girl. (laughs) I haven't watched the new one. But let me hear. Here's the thing. Growing up with the original Unsolved Mysteries hosted by the very scary Robert Stack. Well, he's scary until you see him in Airplane and then you realize it's kind of all a (laughs) gag. But anyway, I don't think that's a show that I ever intentionally watched. As I remember it, it was always on in reruns. I think you could find it on Lifetime eventually all the time. But anyway, the thing about Unsolved Mysteries was it was 
this like blue balls experience where you'd be watching something thrilling and then obviously you knew you would not find out what happened. So why was I even watching this to begin with? <laughs> well, let me tell you something. They have restored the spirit of the original because here I am wrapped up in mysteries that I won't find out the answers to. It is not fun. It is not a fun experience. But this time they don't have Robert Stack and you know I love a menacing man in a trench coat, so I miss that. <laughs> and then secondly... Um, They don't even have really like a narrator. So it's just less scary overall. And it also called to mind a show that I feel like people do not talk about anymore. Did you guys ever watch the show? Another show that always appeared in reruns. Rescue 911 growing up? Yeah. Wait, no, this, yes. (laughs) Okay, because this was a show where people dramatized like someone called 911. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, whatever, my babysitter passed out, come to the house. And then sometimes they would save the person. But the thrill of that show was... Every once in a while, it was, and and whatever, the murderer got away with it. Or, you know, what, what other, other terrifying consequence there could be. I think we need Rescue 911 again. I don't know if we need Unsolved Mysteries again. <laughs> That's fair. Thank you. Yeah, I'll get you Ted Sarandos' email, and we'll get it figured out. Like, we can get the show canceled, <laughs> I promise, Lewis. I'm with you. It does feel like we're, like, we're, we're four meetings away from, yeah, getting yeah, this thing kicked we're close. off. Yeah. One little Zoom call, and it'll be a Lewis Dreamland over there. I have not watched the new Unsolved Mysteries. It was really never a show that piqued my interest, which is weird because I do like true crime and things, but I think it's mostly because it remained unsolved. <laughs> right. The mystery was still a mystery. <laughs> I also have this just weird aversion to dramatic reenactments which was and but they I, don't I, have I that don't this like time that. but you're right oh. yeah but in the original that was what the whole show was dr- dramatic yeah. reenactments of horrible things yeah you know what i also don't like i don't like um audio clips and 911 calls from the real event that also it's is horrible. the most horrific it is horrible. thing i've ever seen <laughs> miserable so if they don't have dramatic reenactments like what what's the modus operandi <laughs> yeah <laughs> right it's well i mean what it ends up being is like Serial or any of these other pre-existing things that we've seen a million times, you know, uh-huh. and they're cashing in on the true crime thing. But truly, it is a show, or I guess a juggernaut, because it was on for years and years. Did you know there was a season where Virginia Madsen was the co-host? Okay, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> where, imagine if Agatha Christie just quit before the third act. You know, she's just like, and that's about it, I'm going home. Wow. Are these reboots of shows are always sort of interesting to me because they never quite capture the reason people were initially watching them. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of um, Eat True Hollywood Story a bit, which used to dig into an individual actor or musician's, like, life, you know, would really dig in, and you would get some sort of, like, closure in their story, at least up until um, either their death or, like, if they were still alive, you know, like, a recent event. And the newer one, I was interviewed in, in a couple episodes of it, but it's not at all like each true Hollywood story. It was focusing on topics. Oh. Like one of them was the Kardashians, and one of them was like the opioid crisis. Absolutely not. And music, no, no. you know? <laughs> and, so, and so you're not digging in. It needs to be about Chris Farley or Mackenzie Phillips or the Mamas and the Papas, you know, mm-hmm. tragic yeah. people. Come on. Uh, I was interacting with a friend who was like, Are you were on some e-thing, and I was like, girl, I have been in quarantine. I really have not been shooting anything. Uh, <laughs> And she was like, no, it was e- It was something about drugs. And I was like, oh, 
the opioid crisis one. Let me, <laughs> l- let me explain how this went. I knew nothing about opioids. I'm going to say, you're not a pharmacologist uh, so, from go. what I understand. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but she was like, I was featured in like 70% of that episode because I did recall that I taped like a Kardashian one and then some other topic that I forget that didn't actually air. But for this one, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this is. They're like, <laughs> oh, we just need you to be the person who's like, and then Prince was discovered in his home. <laughs> like, right. like, like Mac Miller overdosed on. So each time they go to a different celebrity when they're talking about the opioid crisis, I guess I'm the narrator. Which, which by the way, is like the bread and butter of those things because it's all like mm-hmm. storytelling. Plot. Yeah. And years ago... I did like a talking head. It was like for A&E or something. But it occurred to me, like, I thought I was spitballing all these, you know, brilliant things about whatever we were talking about. I think Madonna and Warren Beatty I talked about at one point. But anyway, Mm. then I would get done with my brilliant statement. They'd be like, can you say these seven words exactly and nothing else? I was like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's always intriguing to me when they pull you in because – they always reach out because they're like, oh, you know pop culture. You want to talk about these things, et cetera. And without fail, it is, can you just read? (laughs) I was completely shocked. I don't think anyone in America knew that he had a drug problem. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) It's like, why did you hire me? You could have done this in a PowerPoint slide. Why am I here? (laughs) You could have got... Susie in HR yes. <laughs> to come over and read this. But I'm glad you didn't because I like the truck. <laughs> but, but, but by the way, then you realize there's a whole circuit of celebrities who kind of, well, at one point used to do this way more often, but like, you know, the Gloria Allreds of the world, mm. the like E! reporters who you thought were like, you know, you used to watch every day on E! News Daily. It's like, oh no, they're sitting here like mumbling this stuff too and making it yes. sound like insight, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the revelation that all these people on these shows were being fed things by producers. It really opened up what sort of like I Love the 90s or something was. Totally. Oh, yeah. Girl, did you love the 90s? Did you? (laughs) Did you actually love the 90s or did you just need someone to come in who was like, and everyone was getting Rachel's haircut from Friends. (laughs) (laughs) And then those people end up getting way more screen time than the quote unquote personalities they hire too because they need to tell Mm -hmm. the narrative story of it. I'm not Mm -hmm. like hating on their game, but it's a pretty (laughs) fucking boring game. Right. And also in this in this same thread, back to what you were saying, Lewis, I don't like shows that feature cold cases either. Like Girl, if you don't solve that murder, if you don't give me something that I can work with. And the show Cold Case, by the way. Yes, that's true. Well, I did watch all seven seasons of that Catherine Morris uh What procedural. is wrong with you? Seven How, when? seasons? At what time? Oh, come on. Like Cold Case started in 2003, Lewis. You think I didn't have time to like watch cold case reruns in the summer no but that's just it i know you were watching all this other bizarre bullshit so i don't know how you got to cold case cold case was it i don't know about that (laughs) cold case 
Like, CBS knew what it was doing, okay? Tracy Toms <laughs> was on that show. Oh, I do love Tracy Toms. It, it was always a lukewarm case to me. Never yeah, felt super tepid. essential, let alone cold. Yeah. Yeah, so this podcast is very quickly going to turn into a Michaela Cole dedication fan page podcast because I feel like we talk about her every week and it's still not enough. <laughs> Like there, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have been online at all, but rarely, if ever, online. <laughs> yeah, I know. Who is she? Does she love me? E. Alex Jung, a writer at Vulture, just did a profile on Michaela Cole that I think I've read three times now, um, because it's so riveting and so heart wrenching and so relatable, and really gives this you know very very vulnerable view into Michaela Cole's writing process for I May Destroy You. And it's very beautiful. And if you haven't read it yet, please read it. That's the culture I've been consuming is Michaela Cole and every aspect of her face, her beautiful face. Well, also, uh, there was a specific thing uh, in that article that was amazing how she ended up turning down Netflix because she didn't get enough of uh, ownership of the show, basically. And that is so Mm -hmm. rad. They wanted to give her none, essentially, which is hilarious uh, when you just think about the amount of money they fork over to people for really? Netflix, you know, like the Shonda Rhimes and the Ryan Murphys, and I wonder their ownership mm-hmm. um, percentages, um, and if it was just because uh, she was, you know, a quote-unquote lesser-known person. There's an exchange in there, too, where she, you know, she talks to a Netflix executive, sort of like, can I get 5%? Yeah. And, like, keeps knocking it down, and that person's just sort of like, that's not how we do things here, but, like, I'm proud of you for like, this is what you should be doing. (laughs) It's like, it's just so dumb, you know? Well, also it speaks to the fact that like, if you're entering into this business and you're like a creative, let's say you're a Michaela Cole and you're writing a partly autobiographical story, you need this entire other brain that manages how much money you're going to get, like how much ownership of what, it's just like, there's no overlap Mm -hmm. there. Like if you're a creative person, it would make sense that you don't think that way. So Uh the fact that she has this natural one curiosity and two willingness to be kind of guileless about it. I thought the article beautifully detailed how she was just sort of like kind of amused at what she didn't know and would just sort of throw it out there. I love her playing um, Columbo with TV execs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of menacing men in trench coats. yeah, Doddering around being like, well, um, can can I ask, what were you doing that night? How much ownership am I going to get? It was enlightening in so many ways. In one in particular, uh, we have talked ad nauseum about (laughs) the um, Writers Guild talent agencies conflict. You know, like last year, we mentioned so much agencies making back end off of um, packaging things that you were selling as a creative, you know, and like Mm -hmm. writers, you know, needing to get in that business mindset because, you know, you could get screwed over. When she talks about how CAA was urging her to sort of take this deal because they would be making money on the back end of it, even though it would screw over her ownership of it. That's literally what we have been talking about, you know? Some mega producers, you know, like, may not mind that shit because they're making so much money initially, right? Um, But when you're telling something that's so personal, following up a personal thing like chewing gum with another thing that, you know, is about your own sexual assault um, and your life and you pour that much into it uh, in some cabin somewhere, you know, (laughs) um, you don't want to give that up. 
it's obviously not something that can be easily duplicated mm-hmm. in Hollywood. You know, you just have to maybe deal with some imposter syndrome, sit there and be <laughs> like, yep, uh, right. yes, Michaela mm-hmm. Cole is a genius. Just uh, let that move along. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it is, it does just sort of open up this idea of how we should be approaching creatives, you know, or how you should stick to your guns more. Not everyone gets an opportunity to do something like girls, you know, the internet was very <laughs> mad recently. Oh, when you're they right. Rediscover- when they rediscovered this Lena Dunham um, selling her show because of her connected parents, um, rediscovering this every year, it seems the internet does this. And and specifically that she sold it on, an, on yeah. a page and a half pitch as opposed to a yeah. fleshed out yes. script. Yeah. And then the follow-up yeah. being that there's no women of color in the show. And it's like Lena Dunham doesn't hang out with women of color. That show was an accurate depiction of her life. So. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's just an idea that you have to go with what works for you, you know. And this was a young woman who was not connected, and talks at length about the turmoil she sort of went with, you know, the racism mm-hmm. she experienced at school, etc. Um, and it's not exactly a blueprint for what other creatives can do, but you know, just sort of inspirational. Alex is such a great interviewer. He also had one drop this morning with Sandy Newton. Okay. Oh my God, I was just <laughs> reading it. It is a, first of all, good for Sandy is all I can say, but. I mean. Who doesn't read those like. The, the Tom Cruise anecdote alone where she, you know, she, she actually like really talks about like how much of a like professional he is and how much like he is. Um, they were in Mission Impossible 2 together, of course. Yeah. yeah. And how much he is obsessed with, I hate Mission Impossible 2 also. Oh, it's a terrible uh, movie. They didn't get good it, until it, the it, third it, one. Yeah, yeah, it is garbage. Uh, I like the first one. I don't, but okay, yeah. It's a two and a half star movie, yeah. It's really for the De Palma fans, okay? <laughs> if you're a De Palma girl, you love that goofy movie. But uh, just talks about how like Tom Cruise sort of has this like, I can do everything. I have to do everything. Feel and talks about doing a scene with him that was just horrendous. We all know that's his personality. I mean, he still does his own stunts and like loves jumping out of helicopters <laughs> and like scaling buildings. And it's he really must have no fear of God. Right. <laughs> God doesn't exist to her. It was just such a revealing piece about Sandy Newton, uh, and it made me feel bad for. Um, our bad Twitter app interaction years ago. Oh, you had one? Ooh. Not that I want to revisit it at all, but what is I it? I do, spill. When I worked at MTV News, my colleague Rachel Handler was reviewing Westworld each week, and I did not like this show. And I was just assigned to review it one week, read a recap of it, and I did. And I was just sort of like in the review, like, girl, none of this show makes sense. I don't know <laughs> what this is. Um, but Thandie Newton slayed. Um, yeah. but, then she, but then she read it and tweeted at me, Ira, if you did not like our show, why did you watch it? Thandie, <laughs> no. that's the job. Yeah. Thandie, I needed to pay my rent. That's why I watched Westworld when I don't like it. Anyway, Andy. she's a lovely woman. She got the Emmy. She got the Emmy. Whatever. Yeah, that's a lovely interview. You, people should read it. The What I consumed this week was Hamilton. The oh, sure. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Is that a car brand? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. cool. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Driving around in my Hamilton. <laughs> uh, the Hamilton Lawyer. <laughs> starring Matthew McConaughey. Directed um, video, yes. <laughs> 
obviously, you know, we all know about Hamilton, Lin-Manuel, yes. Miranda's opus. You couldn't avoid it for all of 2016. Correct. Period. I literally couldn't avoid it. My, I was supposed to go, I told this on Keep It before, I was supposed to go see The Color Purple, and then a friend was like, before I left New York, I was there writing on a show, and he goes... I actually got an extra ticket for Hamilton, weirdly. And I, it's, it was the, it's the only time in history I've ever thought, I literally have to go see that and then give up whatever else I was doing because I know this is like what 2016 means. Like, I have to be there. There are very few shows like that sometimes, you know, that happen on Broadway. But there's always just a moment where you forgive a friend if they're like, listen, I know we have dinner tonight. The girl Hamilton, <laughs> yeah. Gotta go. Yeah. Gotta go. So this is something, you saw Hamilton live, Ira? Uh, so I had not actually seen Hamilton before, uh, but I knew the music mm-hmm. very well. Same, same, same. It was great, you know? <laughs> 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 after, after, after all the buildup, uh, it was great. I watched it with my best friend Royce uh, this past weekend, uh, and he really enjoyed it. He didn't know any mm-hmm. of the music. Um, it was weird for me knowing, like, all of the music and the entire story and then just sort of now finally taking in the performances mm-hmm. and I was also high as fuck. So um, mm-hmm. there, was, there was that. <laughs> but listen, I get it. I always got it. There's always been this contingent of people who are very anti-Hamilton because they hate people who express joy on the internet. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are very valid reasons to dislike Hamilton. The two leads are the weakest parts of the show, for instance. Okay. Interesting. I'm thinking about that. I, I, I don't know that I totally agree, but go ahead. Yes. I, well, I mean, as in Lynn and Philippa Sue. Oh, okay. oh, okay. That makes sense. I was thinking Leslie Oden. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, no. Sorry. Les- Leslie Oden won the Tony as well mm-hmm. for lead actor, but Lynn was nominated, and Philippa Sue was also nominated for lead actress uh, in a musical, and Cynthia Erivo beat her mm-hmm. uh, for The Color Purple. And then Renee wins, and David Diggs won, obviously, which is, I mean, I just think those are the three strongest mm-hmm. people in the show, you know? It was just taking it all in and realizing there, there are things that I would critique now. And it was funny seeing people sort of realize these things now that they can experience it. Maybe they hadn't listened to the music before, which I get. Not everyone who's not a theater nerd um, really listens to a soundtrack uh, or cast recording before they go and see the show. Mm-hmm. But there were uh, there's weird moments where it's just sort of like pay some sort of lip service to Hamilton's wife after he dies, you know, um, trying to be like an abolitionist and like help slaves and et cetera, you know? And I feel like it sort of overstates how anti-slavery he was. You know, he didn't personally own them, but, you know, but he was involved in purchasing them for family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think slavery is just sort of like glossed over a bit. I mean, there's a scene where like Sally Hemings is sexily dancing <laughs> uh, with Thomas Jefferson. It's just one offhand line, but I was like, Girl, what am I watching here? Mm-hmm. Uh, there also is just the feeling about when you watch Hamilton, and this is not a knock against it, but it does feel like a bunch of teachers put together a social studies lesson at yeah. an assembly. Schoolhouse Rock. You know Truly. what I mean? Schoolhouse yeah. Rock. Yeah. Yes. I think the music is fantastic, you know, and um, there are a lot of songs that like truly, truly work, and I love it as a production and the work that was put into it. Um, but yes, it does feel a lot like a history lesson in parts. Uh, I do like the um, transformation, you know, of putting all of the characters in different races. Mm-hmm. It works in like a show like The Great, 
um, which I really enjoy. Oh as yeah, well. mm-hmm. I want to see more of that. But um, ultimately, my final thoughts on <laughs> Hamilton are just it's a fun show, and if you dislike it for reasons like I mentioned, like you know, like the issue of slavery and like race, etc., you know, like fully have those discussions about Hamilton, you know, but it, it, it was just weird seeing this drop this weekend and seeing people really going in about how like liking Hamilton is awful or just like wanting to just sort of like attack Lin-Man Miranda for making this thing. And it was like, one, if you don't like Hamilton, you really should have muted the word four years ago. <laughs> if like, like it's been four years. Like <laughs> if you had completely <laughs> muted your timeline of any Hamilton mention, you wouldn't have even known this shit was dropping this weekend. Uh, I will say that the spectacle of uh, Jonathan Groff's spit when he sings, <laughs> I know this is much discussed online. I mean, it really is unbelievable. It looks like I'm like rabies or something. It just, you, you don't expect what you're going to get. What, yes. What I, what I had mentioned before that he was a spitter. When he sings, like when he was showering me truly. in um, Spring Awakening and truly in Little Shop of Horrors, uh, <laughs> that man's lips are beyond wet in this show. <laughs> and the close-ups, it, it, it looks like he w- poured Gatorade over his <laughs> lips right. uh, af- after they want- got a touchdown. <laughs> I was like, why are your lips so wet? <laughs> Singing's yeah. hard. <laughs> as much as I understand the, all the like white liberal this all the critiques of Hamilton I know too many black theater kids who love Hamilton and love rapping along yeah. and I'm like girl there's, there's, there's layers to this shit there's yeah. layers there was a tweet from someone who was like, I don't get how you can all be sort of like sort of mean, funny and critical, but also like Hamilton. And I was like, have you literally met a theater kid? <laughs> they don't do are, anything are, else are, but that. We, we are That's bitches. the recipe. Yeah, yeah, we are bitches and we are assholes and a little bit mean, but we also cry to um, La Vie Boheme. Okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Intersectionality. <laughs> anyway, uh, when we're back, Marsha Gay Harden joins us. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand... That was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like 
basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So we're thrilled to have here somebody who, once we booked her, I thought to myself, this is one of my favorite actors in anything ever. Mm -hmm. I've seen, I I think everything you've been in, which by the way, is everything. (laughs) He's 12, by the way, so he's not old enough to have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was talking with who else gay men about you. I was like, pick the definitive Marsha Gay Harden role. And they couldn't do it because you were so dependable in everything and also in everything that you can't just pick (laughs) one project, even though she won an Oscar for Pollock, nominated for Mystic Mm -hmm. River, Tony for God of Carnage, nominated, of course, for Angels in America, the towering theatrical achievement of the 20th century. Anyway, it's Marsha Gay Harden, guys. Hi, how are you? Welcome. Hello. Thank you. It's nice to be here. That's Lewis, our sit-in encyclopedia. So he just knows everything about everything. (laughs) Yes. Um, I will have to betray my age and nostalgia and say that, obviously, you know, I've I've seen Pollock. You know, I love your theater work as well. But um, it's a flubber for me. Oh, oh, come on. Same, same, same. That is the same, one I would same, mention. Same. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's my new game is I'll be in line someplace or not anymore, but in the day. And I'll be like, has anyone, has anyone seen Flubber? No? Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and now, of course, you're in the new Nat Geo show, uh, Bark Skins, which mm-hmm. calls to mind the fact that I rarely see you in a period piece. Was this like new for you in that kind of respect that's true you know in the theater i've done period before um like the liaison dangereux and you know the summer stock mm-hmm. in virginia i've done that before and i've done shakespeare before but i don't think that i have done so much television or film period that is of that period because this is the 1690s you're talking about and so i haven't and i used to resentfully think that they didn't let americans do that so much they'd you know all those <laughs> great transformational period roles would go elsewhere. Um, But this was a really cast from everywhere. We were shooting up in Quebec, which was really cool because it's where this whole incident happened. And uh, for me, doing the period, I mean, like I've worn corsets, so that wasn't anything except that they lift your upper bosoms to mm-hmm. your chin, practically. It's like yeah. I, I had to take out an extra seat for them on the airplane. I was like, the girls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're wearing all this cumbersome clothing and skirts that drag in the mud, but it just adds the reality to what you're doing. And it's, it's great. I love it. Was it like a, a departure for you in that? Like when, if I think of Marsha Gay Harden appearing in something, I'm talking about Damages season two, which was fabulous. Uh, you elevated the newsroom in such a terrific way. Mm-hmm. I usually think, oh, here comes Marsha with her dossier taking control of a scene. <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> so what was, uh, you, you mentioned the course that just, it, did you have to conjure a new skill set for dealing with dialogue like this? No, not really. Well, yes and no. We were French. Our group 
this little village was French. And so the story for anyone who hasn't seen it is the story of these explorers and adventurers and people with also tawdry paths who come to escape France and they want to start a new life in what we now know as Canada. And basically they do it the way every other kind of occupation took place. They try to take what's not theirs and they're taking it from the First Nations people. And they're fighting the English who are doing the same damn thing, taking this land from the people. So there is this incredible violence and this incredible um, domesticity, bashing heads with each other because we were trying to create this little village and we had to develop French accents. And then we had to figure out how are we going to do French mm-hmm. accents that aren't like Pepe Le Pew, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> 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 but literally, when you start talking in a French accent, you realize that they, you, like, once I caught myself going, ha, ha, ha. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But everybody had it had to have a sound. They were different. And then we were fighting the English. And then it's kind of about survival. What will people do for survival? And at the core of it, there's these two French guys. And one is a rascal and one is not. And the rascal naturally becomes one of the haves. And the one who's not a rascal, who's got a great sense of morality, becomes a have not. And it kind of questions, what do you do to succeed? What do you do to to make it, to survive? Is it survive at any cost? Which always reminds me of that gorgeous book, The Road. It's one of my favorite books ever. Is it mm. survive at any cost? Or is it, or do you help your community? And the people, you, you become to know who the different people are in this village by what they do. Are they community helpers? Or let me get doggy dog kind of. I, I, that didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> oh, no. I think, I think it spoke to it. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I have a question about some of the roles that you are really well known for, and particularly Pollock, where you won the Oscar for it playing Lee Krasner. Um, that, to me, is sort of the epitome of the main character's wife done very well. And, you know, I, I see that in a role like that or, you know, even in Flubber, you know, with Dr. Reynolds, um, this idea of you being able to imbue a character that normally in um, films, especially prestigious films that might get nominated for Oscars, you know, you see um, a woman may often be relegated to just, you know, this wife role um, and not get much else to deliver. Did you feel that that role and other roles like it that you take are sort of um, beefed up afterwards because you were involved? Or were you initially even like, oh, this role is stronger than what I've seen out there? Maybe both of those and one more. And the one more would be that I'm guilty of reading the part of the maid who walks across the stage and go, oh, it's about her. (laughs) (laughs) the entire play i'm pretty sure (laughs) so so that's one i know um both both pollock well there was writing going on during pollock that's an interesting thing because that also is in the edit Mm -hmm. and i remember ed showing me the initial edit and they were going pollock is amazing it's amazing i was like it's good i'm i'm good i'm good but i'm but there's something that's not flying it's not bouncing it's not rising and he had gone away to germany to work with Agnieszka holland i think and then he came back and when he came back he did a re-edit with sony and they just pumped my role up a little bit it was there it was in the edit it was mm-hmm. just 
allowing the audience to stay with the thought of the character a little bit more, or sometimes it's just the camera angle. You'll be, you'll be watching something. You're like, why are we on that person? It's about this person. Or isn't it interesting? We're on that person, even though that person's talking because it's letting me know what's in that person's mind. So sometimes it's the edit. I know with Elwood with Barkskins, Elwood uh, Reed is the creator of Barkskins. And he was writing a different character than before he spoke to me. He was specifically writing a character who was able to have children. So she was younger than me. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because the women's power base in the 1690s in this little community in Quebec was Bible of the was can you have a baby? So the King mm -hmm. Louis, I didn't know about this. Maybe you guys did. King Louis would send women over on a boat. They're called the Fille du Roi, the daughters of the king. He'd send them over on a boat and they'd have a small dowry. But now these are girls who probably had not crossed their legs very much in life, or they had come from very poor backgrounds or violent backgrounds because they were seeking something new. Because I was like, whose parents would let their kids get on a boat? We got to go back, you know, with all the with all the fighting <laughs> going on there. Who are these girls? And you come to discover that they're not these prim and proper daughters of the king with their pinkies out. Um, but either way, they would come over and there'd be like a barn dance. And then they'd have to pick the guy that they thought they had the best chance of living with well. And their job was have babies. So when Elle would cast me, he took away that power base for my character. And her husband dies really early on. And what was he going to do with my character? And she became a really strong voice of the community. Even someone, like one of my favorite lines in it, when, when I read it, I was like, okay, I know who she is. <laughs> Some guy touches her. Because it's very violent. It was a very male-run community. Um, a guy is trying to touch her and grab her enormous bosoms. And um, he, <laughs> and she slams her staff in the ground and says, I will club your balls into your belly. I'm like, okay, okay, I know who she is. And he, he toughened her up and he, he made her someone who was seeking power and seeking to change the rules. And she's not going to give her land back. And she was more tolerant than the other people in the village. Um, and I just, I loved this character that he, he began to design, which is the fun of television. If you're doing film, it is what it is, right? You, you can't mm -hmm. change it, but if you're doing television, they can start developing it to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you play a character in this project that is pr probably particularly one of my favorite types of scrappy women as a woman who has incurred this great grief and now has to figure out how to be, how to, how to be helpful and how to be, how to stand in that. So I just wanted to ask you. How much of your own grief and your own life are you accessing when you're playing this character, Mathilde? And and what did it take to unlock that for you? I don't think I, I think you're right. I don't think I can help but do that. That it's acting is really personal. And you've created this character over there, Mathilde, who comes from France. And she's cooks and nurtures and does all these things. But what are her... What are her flaws? What are her grievances? And that's where I come in <laughs> because you know what yours are. And, and I, I know specific to that, her husband died um, and she decided that she, she almost rubbed her hands and said, it's my time. That wasn't necessarily my way during my divorce. I'm sure I spent a lot of time licking wounds. But then, you know, you, you pick your head up yeah. and you say, I can do this. And I became someone who I told you I'm upstate, you know, it's a pretty rustic place where I am. And I became someone who can drive a tractor and do things like mm -hmm. that. I wouldn't have had to, I would have relegated it to someone to certainly to the male, 
even turning the TV on is relegated to usually the guys in the house. So you become father and mother, or you become man and woman, which is probably best, right? That you mm-hmm. you allow for all of your skills to develop. Um, I do think I always use my life, but then you know it's not it's not a mimicry. So you have to go also what is different. Mm-hmm. When I think for that, there's a different kind of diplomacy. Uh, that people of the past have that mm. our generation doesn't quite have it in the same way. And I think definitely my kids don't have it in the same way. They're, they're not interested in diplomacy. They're interested in message, 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 which is good for change. But um, I know my generation has this kind of, well, let's look at both sides now. And mm-hmm. Mathilde, that the 1690s, you know, they're trying to do something different, but they, they all had, this diplomacy of France. And they also had the sense of who they were as not royals. They had the sense of who they were as common people. And suddenly common people in this community have power, which they didn't have in France, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that you are exhibiting right now as you talk to us is just an insane sense of just research. And I feel like that translates through almost everything you do, even like fictional characters. I watched The Mist the other day, Mm. which is one of the signature Marsha Gay Harden roles. I think we can all agree. (laughs) Um, And on the page... And on the screen, it, the character's a little bit like Piper Laurie and Carrie or something. Just a very devout, uh, uh, but like scarily devout woman who has like all these like kind of prophecy-like um, lines about <laughs> the grimness of humanity, etc. When I think about the breadth of your characters, including someone as crazy as that, it seems like you just have a grasp of character in a way that feels super inherent. Is there anything about someone you've you're supposed to play on the page that totally baffled you at first. Are you ever baffled by what you read on the page or can you justify it almost immediately? No, I think sometimes, and that goes back to your question earlier, that that sometimes I'll read something and I think, I don't know why I should play that role. Mm -hmm. Somebody else is going to play that role so much better than me. They're going to get it. They're going to understand it. I don't know what I can bring to it that's any different or that's any greater. And so oftentimes I just won't be drawn to it. I'll turn away from that. When that particular one that you're talking about in the mist was just the most fun audition process because he cast me without meeting me. And I, but the character is written kind of like Kathy Bates and, um, mm. misery. misery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you cast Kathy? Because that's sort of what it, what it is. He says, no, no, I want to see what you can bring to it. So I gave him these five different looks of women who I thought would be cuckoo in a grocery store and be a hog. <laughs> and one of them was, uh, you know, a, a Karen, basically. Um, <laughs> pushing her grocery cart. She's going to take them before you can get it. She was just a Karen. And then another one was a kind of culty hippie woman, um, like with the beret and everything. Then there was a, the one that we chose was the preacher's daughter. She was the preacher's daughter, mm-hmm. who I felt had been a little bit inappropriately loved by the preacher <laughs> and then there was a, a nun and I and she was too obvious so we I put like oh and there was Tammy Faye and I put on like all these wigs and I did all the makeup and I would send him pictures and it was Frank Darabont and I'd say what do you think Frank which one do you think and he was going toward the nun and then we kind of went you know it's too obvious you walk in and it was a starched little prim woman and you're done instead the preacher's daughter had this sense of mm-hmm. sensuality I thought about her and that was fun to do but it's mm-hmm. it was Sometimes it's visual, sometimes it's internal. I know with when you first said the mist, I thought you said Mystic River. And I thought, oh, that was fun. Because on the page, she was oh, just a really slim background character who did the wrong thing. But I called Clint because I'd worked with him one time before. Actually, he called here and said, I think you, my niece picked up the phone, who's from Texas. <laughs> and she's like, who is it? They said, 
And she was like a, a, a woman who was another devoutly, devoutly religious woman in the mist who has a teeny little voice and she ends up doing the right thing, which was so interesting talking about research because in the research of that, you would go, if you think someone in your family commits a crime, what is the percentage of people who will report that person in their family or who will cover for that person in their family? And most people will cover mm-hmm. for that person in your family. But if you are... If God is your real father, right, and <laughs> someone that you think commits a crime, do you tell? And God would say in her world, you have to tell, you can't cover. And she thinks her husband murdered this person. So she doesn't tell, but she doesn't tell the right person. She tells the wrong person who is the godfather, Sean Penn of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I won't say the end of the movie, but she <laughs> does that. And she's the everybody in that movie gets punished for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. In my day, if a cop said, get in the car, you got the car. And in this case, it was a bad choice. Mm-hmm. In my day, if you hit somebody on the road, you pulled over to help them. And in this case, that was the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. And if you somebody hurt somebody, you tell an authority. And again, mm-hmm. all choices that come back. So the research helped me on that one because it because at first I felt like that little betrayer, but it was you know most people wouldn't have done it, and so that told me mm. she is so religious. Mm. She is answering to God, right? In a way, you know, Mystic River and even the Mist, you know, feel more emblematic of just sort of the time we're in now. You know, that idea of you know, oh, you you get in the police car at that moment. You right. know, or it's like even or in the Mist, you know, like a woman who could you know sort of engender her neighbors to, you know, commit these um, acts, you know, it, it feels like we're more open to that being the reality now in a way that they seem sort of outlandish then, you know. I feel like the times that we're in right now are re-shining a light on so many things and making those past films, movies, theaters, whatever, seem even more explosive. Mm. We just watched Hamilton last night. And yeah, same. Did you... Yeah. We stopped at intermission because we'd gotten started late, so we're finishing it today. But weren't you just excited for an intermission (laughs) in a film, by the way? I was like, thank you. Right. (laughs) But it's so, first of all, the choreography, the lighting, the performances, the. How did he create that? It's, it's, I'm astonished at the the words, the Mm. rhythms, all of it, but the message of it, too. You're just listening to it again, going, okay. Here we here we are. These times, and and it makes me so glad that they released it earlier. It makes me so glad that there is mm-hmm. new focus, and that it'll reveal messages in different ways, more poignant ways, mm-hmm. you know, more explosive ways. Yeah, I mean, speaking of just poignance in theater, uh, I mean, you were involved in the um, original Broadway cast of Angels in America, playing Harper Pitt. That is something that I remember wasn't the filmed version of it, though I did get to see um, the revival of it in London. Just the idea of when that was on HBO for the first time, you know, being able to see that. Um, Did you feel a real sense of importance when you were playing that role? Like, at the time, did it feel um, as important as maybe it does now? It's interesting. It came upon me doing it because when I first came to the project, I didn't know 
the importance of the project. And my agent was really saying, look at this, look at this, I want you to do this. And he was uh, sick at the time and I didn't know it. And so I didn't understand it. And then in the middle of performing it, there was the Gay Pride Parade in DC. And David and the boys went down to the parade <laughs> and my, my grandmother was ill and I couldn't go. And I remember them um, coming back and going, this is our chant. And so this is, you know, a long time ago. This is our chant. We're here. We're queer. It's the end of our career. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. because, because even to show up was like, you know, a lot of people were coming out at the time that were Hollywood or theater. Um, now it seems to me commonplace in a great way. But then it wasn't. It was still a struggle. I think working on, uh, once we started doing Perestroika, mm-hmm. you kind of began to realize that this was a train that was going around the world, that was not stopping, that was going to heaven and help me. It was just like, it was like Hades Town is for me. I think it's one of the most beautiful musicals. And, and it was just um, profound. And in the middle of it, I was like, oh, and not even because of the importance of it, more because people would come up to me and it's never happened like this. People come up to me in the village and they would say, I just want you to know that I took my parents to see the play and then I told them I'm dying. So it was right in the middle of this moment where we were still losing so many. And so the Mormons were coming and booing and there was a violence, not real violence, but an undercurrent of turbulence in the house that I've not seen maybe was it, who was it that visited um, Hamilton and they got booed out? Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. Mike Pence. Okay. Mike Pence. So maybe it was like that kind of thing where the show itself is so powerful, but then there's Tony at the helm. And I mean, he was amazing. And George Wolf, George's direction alone insisted that there be music and life and rhythm because he would direct like that and say, you know, you need to come into the room like ba 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 ba, and and that, and you would have to interpret that in this movement and and how you would do it. Mm-hmm. So, I think all in all, I understood it. But to your truth, you understand. I think in retrospect, we understand things better. So even time in, people will say to me, "You were in the original Broadway Angels of America." I'm like, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> Amazing that I got to do that. Because I wasn't known, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. anything and, and I got picked and that was pretty huge. And sorry, that weirdly reminds me too of a role that like I really wish I could have seen when we were t- when we were all asking too about, you know, the sort of roles that you're really known for, like these strong and just sort of um, incendiary sort mm-hmm. of um, women. Um, you played Alexandra Delago in Sweet Bird of Youth, mm-hmm. and mm. that just seems One like a great role roles. that is so far from anything I could have imagined you playing. Right. That was hard. Mm. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. That role. Because <laughs> Tennessee Williams was going through – he was, it was late in life for him, and he was going through this uh, like um, surrealist um, desire. And so half the play is kind of like surrealism, and the other half is reality. And the movie is all reality, and we, the movie's famous to us, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Newman and Geraldine Page. And the director, whom I loved, said, Jonathan said, like, the play opens with her in this bed looking effed up as hell, hung over his hell. He said, I want it to be ugly. This is going to be ugly. And so this was like makeup running down your face. You know, this is like the hangover that you had in college that you hope your parents never find out about. This is like <laughs> that, you know. 
but I thought it was funny. I'm not sure the audiences knew uh, that they could laugh. And this is, it was in this Chichester is where we did it, which is a really interesting thing where you do things also. Because Chichester is this interesting theater community that supports avant-garde or new or different theater. But I'm not sure they actually love the theater that they support, right? Because the, mm. the, they love it when something more bright and musical and accessible comes in. And I think Sweet Bird of Youth is not super accessible. I loved playing Alexandra Delago. She's so grand. There's nothing more fun than playing <laughs> grand, you know. But um, I don't think that we we I don't think we realized the play quite. Mm-hmm. I don't think we realized it in the process. And that's always kind of like you feel like you sort of half met somebody. That's how I feel about Alexandra. I sort of half met her, but I didn't realize her. Oh, that's so interesting that you would have even yeah. close to a regret because I, you are every time I see your version of something, I'm like, that is the final version. I, I, I literally, to me, you are like what my maybe like my dad's generation would think of Robert Duvall, which is like you come on screen and I'm just like, this person is in charge. I am comfortable with how much power this person is. That's so interesting. Thank you. That's feeling safe with an actor is a really cool thing because then you don't, you, you, you let them go to Mm -hmm. dreams because you still feel safe. And as soon as you don't feel safe, like I can't sing. And if I get up on stage to sing, people don't feel safe at all. (laughs) <laughs> and so, and you can just help. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when somebody's like, yeah. oh, yeah. so that's that's a lovely compliment. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marsha. I mean, we could have spent like an hour going into damages. To be yeah, honest. please, right? Uh, which damages, I, which I just, two. which I just started rewatching on Hulu, and. Even you just didn't like these tense scenes with Glenn Close. And that entire <laughs> show was tense, to be honest. I mean, I feel like I don't know what it was like filming it, but I, all I remember is that when it was first announced, mm-hmm. I remember there was a lot of talk about how people are bored with lawyer shows with courtroom right. scenes. So I love rewatching it and just seeing how many scenes uh, can have lawyer action take place wherever in a I bedroom think one your first one, <laughs> yes i think like one of the first ones in in season two when you appear like you're bringing legal documents to a basketball court in heels <laughs> yeah, i love that you remember it so good uh, it was definitely chance doing it um and also they would write throughout the night it was one of this was a specific period in time where writers didn't want actors to see their material beforehand so you didn't mm-hmm. get to see it really. So you, you would get to the set and you would be like, oh, I'm a corporate lawyer. Oh, I thought I hated corporations. No, okay, okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> and you would create it, you you know, kind of going along. And, and so the story was revealed to you at many times as it was revealed to the audience. Mm-hmm. But that was really fun. She was really sexy. And I just remember some scene with Bill where I got to have garters on and mm-hmm. delivering some speech and never playing to the garden, never like I'm doing my garters now. It was all, I'm doing my garters now because that's what I wear. I wear garters, but I'm also giving you the speech and telling you to go to hell or whatever she, whatever she was saying. <laughs> and that's fun. That's the counterpoint of, you know, like when people have a sexy thing they're wearing, but then they play the sex of it, it's kind of like in your face, mm-hmm. a little bit obvious. So it was fun to just, that's just who she is. So whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love that. And Morning Show felt kind of like damages in a way to me. And that, but we did have our material before, but you had mentioned Morning Show before. So the character I play in Morning Show is based on Maureen Dowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's such a whippersnapper, you know, firecracker reporter. I love her. She's smart and ballsy and she's so beautiful. 
And I had not met her before, but I knew of her because she, I knew she and Aaron Sorkin had dated when I didn't news room. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I was at this uh, party, this um, Oscar party, and this beautiful redhead goes by and she drops a phone. And I pick it up and I chase her down. I'm like, hi, this is your phone. You just dropped it. And she turns around her again. She goes, thank you. And she looks up. Oh, she says, I'm, <laughs> I'm Maureen Dowd. And I wasn't, it was loud. I wasn't clicking. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. So here, you just dropped it. Oh my God, I'm playing you. <laughs> so I thought if I had not handed that phone back, what would be in that telephone? What would be in Maureen Downs? <laughs> Am I saying right? Oh my gosh, that's some powerful stuff in there. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, this was really fantastic, Marcia. It was nice <laughs> to talk to you all. Thank you for being yes. so kind. Yeah. Oh please. Yes. Thank you. All Thanks right. for the Marsha Gay hardness you bring. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care, guys. Aida hates Kanye West so much that she dipped out of this particular topic, but she will be back for the Keep It segment. Storming out like a Housewives reunion. (laughs) She closed her computer, and Andy Cohen is frantically calling her. That's right. But on the 4th of July, while we were all busy not celebrating America, Gap shoe salesman and former... Trump supporter, Kanye West, uh, former, maybe, who knows at this point. I have the distinct uh, feeling he'll come around again, so we'll see, yeah. we'll see. Kanye tweeted, we must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision, and building our future. I am running for president of the United States. Then, Kim Kardashian retweeted that with an American flag, and Elon Musk, a billionaire who can send people to space, but can't rescue them from caves, tweeted his support as well. What's going on here? I know what's going on. It's trash. There's that. Uh, Imagine him not running for president. It's sort of like the old um, adage about journalism, like, dog bites man, not a story. Man bites dog, that's a story. If Kanye West didn't run for president, that's what I want to see in the Daily Beast. I don't need to read about this other nonsense. Remember how there was an entire news cycle about how The Rock was not running for president? Right, which I guess we which I feel like he, I guess we I do. I feel like he will. I feel like he will. There's Here's time. my thing. I agree with you. I think that Donald Trump obviously shifted the um, temporal fold that we're in, uh, the space con- continuum, whatever it may be. Um, but obnoxious celebrities deciding that they want to run for president or office is not new. Oh, no, no. It it feels like, in a way, quaintly old-fashioned, other than we are now aware a celebrity can become president and torch everything. So it's actually anxiety-inducing more than it should be. But it also has that feeling of a disgusting, unnecessary Roseanne PR stunt, which left us all wanting the most less you could even get. Yeah. If you recall, in 2015, during the VMAs, he first declared his intention to run for president in 2020 during a rambling 11-minute speech. Um, And then he declared he'd run in 2024 after he met with Trump in 2016. And then in an April 2020 interview with GQ, he said that he would vote for Trump again. I just find it exhausting. And I get that... 
the reason most people are upset is because it is dominating the news cycle. You know, this happens, and now we have to get think pieces and be like, why Kanye shouldn't run for president? And, you know, whatever. I'm not taking it seriously. Yes, you take it seriously if he gets on the ballot, if he starts actually legitimately running for president. But right now, this is just nonsense that he has spewed before. And he has a new song out. And he has the whole Gap collaboration. And I feel like this is just Kanye doing what he does best, drumming up interest for a project of his because we're not interested otherwise. Manic narcissists have this ability to get us interested in their whole megalomania. And that is, I guess, his gift. But let me just say, if he becomes president, the first thing that's getting a pardon probably is that last album because God, it needs it. It is truly a bad album. Truly. It almost feels like it's not the same artist based on what has preceded that album in his catalog. Because, I mean, for at least his first four albums or something, he won the Paz and Jop year-end poll of critics. Like, I mean, that is very astonishing for someone to win that that many times. And this album, who wants to listen to that again? I mean, five, College Dropout Through My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is a... I would say perfect run. I, I even like 808s and Heartbreak. I do enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. same. That's why I included in that perfect run, you know? And um, I like Jesus and Life of Pablo, um, but Jesus is King, truly a mess. Right. So it was yay. I do like his new song, Wash Us in the Blood, though. Ugh. So maybe so. I love how every time you like something of his, you have to have this personal reckoning of, should I even express it at all? Like, you know, it's. I know. Mm-hmm. It's like, ugh, I do like it. don't tell people yeah right this is just between me and my yeah shaky conscience yes and now all of our listeners i'll be the one at the red table next week yeah that's right be like mother love (laughs) forgive and forget (laughs) all right when we're back keep it And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. This is Keep It. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like we have to explain why we're laughing. So, Ira, you might have to go first this time. <laughs> I'll go first this time. Let's okay. mix it up. Uh, <laughs> my Keep It is to the official Knives Out Twitter account. <laughs> this movie is now a year and a half old. Why are we I keeping know. it to the Knives Out Twitter account? <laughs> okay, so what you need to know before I get to this keep it is that there is a hilarious Twitter account that is named Anna de Armas Updates. And this is a fan account that does daily posts and fan updates for Golden Globe nominee and movie star Anna de Armas, who, as we all know, was in Knives Out. And she is currently in a publicity relationship with Ben Affleck. Where she does a lot of laughing at everything he says according to the pictures. Listen, I want to believe that there is some love happening here, but this is like the... um, adult contemporary version of Camila Cabello and Shawn Mendes. Mm. They are. Everything about their relationship involves being in public, 
doing exaggerated um, pantomiming of laughing at whatever they are saying to each other. Like, they look like high school extras who are doing too much in the background of a play when they're just supposed <laughs> yes. to be pantomiming conversation. They it's are like, guys, always... guys, guys, wear yellow if you're not okay. Like, tell us <laughs> something. They are... Constantly going to Dunkin' Donuts. Constantly, <laughs> always the iced coffee. Yeah. Yes. Gross. Always a fucking iced coffee. <laughs> always walking a dog. Do you remember the time that they uh, got locked out of his place and had to climb <laughs> over the gate to get in? At any rate, these are celebrities who know that they are being followed by paparazzi because they're followed by paparazzi every fucking day. I'm not at all buying that this isn't some sort of scam, you know? <laughs> but the Anna de Armas updates account that posts daily updates of Anna um, one time tweeted that she and Ben Affleck need to put on some fucking masks because they are constantly also walking around in quarantine without wearing masks. Just like... All the time. And I think they even showed up at um, one of the protests, too. And one of them didn't have a mask on then, too. And it was like, what the fuck are you two doing? These reindeer games are unsafe. (laughs) Goodwill hunting, more like hunt for a mask. Okay? (laughs) Or go put on a mask. Yeah. 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 Well, Ira, if they wore a mask, they couldn't be identified. And if they want to be photographed, they need to be identified. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, so Anna de Armas, when the account tweeted at her to wear a mask, blocked the account. <gasps> and that was one of the funniest days on Twitter. Uh, just Anna de Armas blocking the Anna de Armas updates <laughs> account. <laughs> and the account is so funny, and I follow this account. Now, my keep it, is to something that was amusing but less amusing is, so now Anna de Armas Updates has been blocked by the official Knives Out Twitter account, which is just whatever gay is still running the Knives Out account a year later. Let me me find out it's you. It's just trying to be amusing. It's not me uh, (laughs) because um, the Knives Out official account fully started diving into the um, knives out jokes and memes that I was always making online Mm -hmm. after me. So that's why I still have a grudge with the knives out Twitter account. And is that why your knives have been in my, yeah, my knives have been in. Well, also it's a year (laughs) later. It's not that funny anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Was it, was it that funny? I do like the idea of a knives out sequel about the Twitter account though. Like there should be some sort of whodunit play here. (laughs) If Jamie Lee Curtis is in charge secretly, I think that's a satisfying ending, you know. Anyway, I thought that the initial um, brouhaha between Anna de Armas <laughs> and Anna de Armas updates was hilarious, but the Knives Out official account blocking Anna de Armas updates just seems like it's trying to create a moment that the initial moment was spontaneous and funny, mm. and this is just trying to do a retread of that. You're <laughs> saying it's a little bit contrived and overdone, kind of like Daniel Craig's southern accent. That's how we <laughs> feel. Yeah. Well, let's also give points to me for not pulling out a French accent when Marsha Gayhard was talking about French accent. Sure. <laughs> I saw it bubbling L- up in L- you. <laughs> you saw it bubbling up in me. Lewis's <laughs> face yeah. would have imploded. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> is he speak is he speaking French to Marshall Gayhardin? <laughs> <laughs> I wish Thank I wish I wish the Lord. listeners could have seen Lewis was he was drop jaw the entire time just like <laughs> staring into the soul of Marsha. I looked like like you know how you, when you watch the Beatles on Ed Sullivan the people in the audience put their hands on their face that's me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I get your Ed Sullivan reference. Anyway. <laughs> Aida, um, what's okay, your keep it? it? Okay, girl, I don't even know if I should be mad about this shit anymore because I feel like I'm going to be screaming about gender things in Hollywood until I die. But um, that's just something I made my peace with. So Holly Berry, our favorite actress, I'm sure, was on Instagram Live talking to a woman, like <laughs> chatting about her life, kikiing about future projects. And she mentions that she has been offered a role to play a trans man in, the ne- in, a, in an upcoming film. Girl, what in the boys don't cry? What in the Hillary <laughs> swank? What in the it's 2020, not 1999, bitch, we don't need you to play a trans man ever again? Like, I just don't understand. I don't understand why we have to keep telling these people the same basic shit. And the whole time she talks about the character, she misgenders the character the entire time. Like, if this wasn't, if her even considering the role didn't already indicate that she was unaware about gender issues, the way she speaks about the character also reaffirms that. And, you know, again, it's 2020. 2014, 2015, we have Jared Leto winning an award for Dallas Buyers Club playing a trans character and Eddie Redmayne playing a character in Danish Girl where he gets nominated for an uh, Oscar. So it's like, that was six years ago. We have made so much growth. We don't need you to do that anymore. And there's an argument that could be made, I think, that um, these people help frontier the trans community and they help what? Barely. Barely that could that argument be made, especially because this is indicative of a larger issue, that Hollywood is more obsessed with trans people and their transition rather than the fact that they're fucking people. I don't give a shit that in The Danish Girl it's someone transitioning. That means that you guys continue to tell stories about people who are transitioning rather than trans people just living their fucking life. Right. It's the difference between like fetishization of transness and letting trans people tell their own stories. And if you think to yourself, if a trans person's telling their own story, are they going to fixate on that? The answer is probably not, right? So mm-hmm. why are cis people making decisions to keep focusing on that? Exactly. Exactly. We got a lot of this in the disclosure, which we had talked about last week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, I do appreciate that Hallie um, issued a statement. She did. She has since issued an apology. fully apologized. And, um, you know, hopefully she will watch Disclosure uh, and learn more (laughs) about it. Uh, But it is this weird obsession with, you know, a trans person's genitalia Mm -hmm. and the transitioning that happens in these stories so much. I mean, we get that, you know, in other queer stories, too, you know, where, like, there was this fixation, you know, just on either, like, violence against queer people or uh, the coming out story. And it's just always thinking that our, our lives always center around this one event that is titillating to you. Yeah. Um, and it robs trans people and other queer people of their stories that happen to the rest of their life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is sad, you know, because I'm like, I actually like Halle Berry. Um, and, oh. you know, from ha- well, from having read the Fanny Newton interview mm-hmm. uh, in Vulture and just talking about how, like, she and Halle were very much some of the, like, only two black women at a time who were allowed yeah. to be those actresses. And she found it interesting that they both have one white parent. Uh, mm-hmm. And Fanny even talks so much about how, like, she constantly puts her black parent in Instagrams with her because she wants to affirm that 
that she is putting positive black messages out mm-hmm. into the world more than she puts her white parent in Instagrams. And that was heartbreaking to me, yeah. to be honest. And I feel like Halle Berry was so good in Monsters Ball. Sure. And it's just a shame <laughs> that um, we don't have more work from her, you know? Yeah. Um, she does schlocky work and maybe, you know, there's bad choices from her and maybe she just likes wearing dumb wigs and running around <laughs> um, screaming things about kidnapped children. But uh, Or playing also... basketball and Catwoman. Yes! Nope. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so scandalous, as Mystique <laughs> would say. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but it just reminds me of that recent... Viola Davis thing, where you know, where there was a viral interview with her where she talks about how whenever she's interviewed with people or has meetings on films, they call her the black Meryl Streep. And she's like, mm-hmm. Well, you don't pay me like Meryl Streep, and you don't give me the <laughs> breadth of roles that Meryl gets every year to like go from comedy to drama to mama mia to like like all these things, you know? And like I'm sure Hallie did not get that opportunity to do other roles like that, and now she's relegated to having to possibly sign on for like some trans man role that she should not be doing. Uh, mm-hmm. When even two years ago, that's something that like Scarlett Johansson got dragged for, right? right? Yeah. Like two years ago, even an offensive role like that was still only something that was being offered to like a white woman like Scarlett. I know. Now, now they're <laughs> shuttling it to Halle Berry thinking, oh, she won't know anything about this um, world and like maybe we can convince her to do it and then it blew up in their faces. So it's just sad all around. There is that odd aspect to it that now that it's trickled down to a black woman, it's like, oh, yes, we've made progress. Right? <laughs> that really, it's so <laughs> fucked up. But yeah, yeah. I, just, I just, I'm very frustrated about that and it's, it, it's a reminder that we're going to constantly be fighting these battles and having to clear up understandings about gender studies and trans people and just cleaning up stupid, misguided ideas every day, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Lewis, <laughs> what's your keep it? Uh, my keep it is to the Netflix movie that I finally got around to seeing, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. And I'll tell you why. I think you can basically guess my problems with it from the outset. Uh, first of all, Eurovision is truly a worldwide phenomenon. If you're not familiar, Ira and I are personally obsessed with it, but uh, European countries compete. They each submit a song and a performer, and in a giant X-Factor American Idol-like event, uh, representatives from each of the competing countries vote in a mathematical system that plays out in front of you, like you're watching a thriller from 2001. (laughs) You see the math all add up. And the people who are in this contest are often demented, but really, in retrospect, it's a lot of just European clothing, and now it's a lot of, like, cute boys in Zara who sing these (laughs) songs. But um, the movie, which stars uh, Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, I think is aware that people are obsessed with Eurovision and don't want it to be totally mocked. But at the same time, it swings too far the other way and becomes this sort of humorless drama. And if that also feels completely out of step too. like when you look at the picture, you think, oh, I'm going to get Zoolander from this. But you really get this drab other thing. And I think it's confused about how much it can play with Eurovision. Mm -hmm. And what you end up getting is a kind of warmed over early 2000s-ish comedy that ends up being too self-serious. And I feel like it's a missed opportunity because I do think there should be a Eurovision movie. And it should be Mm -hmm. wacky in certain ways. But it's like this movie ended up falling through all the wrong cracks somehow in that way. It should be gay also. True. The reason people love Eurovision is just like it's this gay fantasia. 
you know, that comes on every year. And the my problem with Eurovision when I saw it was that it just feels so straight. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, it feels like the people involved have no idea why people actually stand Eurovision. And that's why it feels like it swings in that other direction, too, because I feel like the jokes aren't specific enough. It's not specific in that Zoolander way, um, or even not as specific as the ice skating movie that Will Ferrell Oh, Blades of Glory, yes. Blades Mm -hmm. of Glory, which I enjoy, you know? There's diminishing returns in it. I find Will Ferrell very funny. I have found him funny in so many films. Um, But I think at this point, he is... um, maybe too old to be playing the same character because mm-hmm. the character is always a man-child. Um, but now that that's progressed for, you know, like two, three decades, it, it just seems like a character that people wouldn't be putting up with. I think yeah. It just I feels just, so out of place. You know, I, was, I, I wanted a Eurovision movie. I wanted this to be good. I prayed for this. However, uh, Will Ferrell... Stop. <laughs> Stop making movies. Do something new. I really like, I think about Step Brothers or I think about, you know, all these movies, Blaze of Glory, like we talked about, these movies that I grew up watching and really, really enjoyed. Will Ferrell was hilarious. Anchorman. Mm-hmm. It just feels as if this is him trying to figure out how can I still be my wacky, funny, white guy self in a way that's mm-hmm. socially acceptable. And he's like, well, you can't be mad at me for making a European movie. Like, <laughs> I just I felt a lot of frustration about that, especially after seeing him in movies with Kevin Hart, like Get Hard, where I'm like, ugh, where he's wearing cornrows in the in the movie poster. So yeah. Will Ferrell and I have a sticky past, and I don't know if I want to see him anymore. I need space. Yes. Yeah. He's the kind of person who I like the mode he usually reverts to, but there are times when it just feels reiterative too. And I almost can't predict when I'm going to like it or when I'm not going to like it. There are times when it's hilarious and then other times when I'm like, you could have given this performance 25 years ago. It would have been totally the same. You know, it's interesting who we allow to kind of give the same performance again. Like the obvious example would be like Woody Allen, you know, like who did the same thing again and again and again. And some people that is catnip to them. But to me, when I watch specifically his performances, I'm like, this is absolutely the same thing you did in Stardust Memories. And now it's, you know, whatever, 2011 or the last time I watched a Woody Allen movie. Now his new role is, you know, um, defending his creepy relationship with his stepdaughter. Full-time job. Yeah, Mm -hmm. full-time job. Um, And some people, that is catnip to them, too. Like Alec Baldwin. He loves that role. True. (laughs) I have so many... I have have so much beef with Judd Apatow for the people he brought into Hollywood. (laughs) That little film factory. Uh, Also... Rachel McAdams deserves better. Truly, oh, definitely. Truly. She, I, I truly don't know how she played a teenager in a hilarious comedy like Mean Girls, and we rarely get that from her again. Could she be one of those people who plays the same role over and over again? <laughs> I'd be thrilled about that. I would like that. to see that role again. <laughs> you know who's like that also is Emily Blunt. We get like one of the spikiest, sauciest comic performances ever in The Devil Wears Prada, and she's mm-hmm. she's made good movies since then, but like Mary Poppins is like an uninspired choice for her. I want her to have the roles where she can be like a viper. Yeah. Also, Rachel McAdams needs more work, period. I don't see her in enough films. This is ridiculous. I feel like she would be bigger, but she's too politely Canadian. I feel like that is what's holding her back. She needs to be a bitch of a Canadian. That's what I mean, yeah. (laughs) There are a few. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get tangled up with Anne Murray. She'll mess you up. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, All right, that's our Keep It. For the week. Hi, and um, <laughs> thanks again to Marsha K. Harden for joining us. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. 
Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline, like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.